Amen. So, I want to preach today under this title, Borderline, Borderline, Why We Fall to Temptation. Did you know that uh, right now Georgia is in a, in a battle? The state of Georgia is in a border battle. Did you know that? We have been for over 200 years. We've been fighting with Tennessee and with North Carolina over the original state line just north of us at, I believe it's the 35th parallel. And uh, it's been a lot of back and forth over 200 years. And actually earlier this year in February, the state uh, voted again to bring the issue to Congress and to try and restore the area that was lost whenever a mistake was made in drawing the border. So there's about 30,000 people that's lives would be affected immediately if they changed it. I thought that was interesting. Borders matter. Borders matter. And when I'm talking about a borderline, I'm talking about the line that separates one person or one country or one area from another area. So our church uh, falls right just inside of the border of the city of Suwannee. If we were just a little bit further this way down Lawrenceville-Suwannee Road, we would end up being in a county area and not technically in Suwannee. And I learned that that has a major impact whenever I went to get a CO for our building that we're in. I had to go to the county and I had to go to the city. There were multiple places I had to go. And it had an impact. Borders are important and valuable things. And there's a danger for all of us if we have not drawn lines in our life and borders around our life that we could potentially hold, lose what we hold as being valuable for our life. And without realizing it, without knowing it, sometimes we're under pressure from the world or from society, from culture. And this culture that we're in, this society that we're in, the world that we live in is constantly trying to shape or reshape our values. Now, I could go into politics and talk about some political things that have happened recently that are trying to push to reshape the values of America, but that's really not what I want to focus on. That's not what I want to preach about. What I want to preach about is the fact that if you live too close to the border, without realizing it, you're putting yourself in a place where you can be affected and impacted. And it's important to know that when it comes to having a commitment for Jesus Christ, we have got to be fully committed. We can't just live on the borderline. Instead, we have to draw a strong border and then pull ourselves away from that border. What I've learned in my walk with Jesus Christ is that the things that I continually allow in my life and I give them a little place, those are the things that I'm going to struggle with over and over and over. Those are the lessons I'm going to have to learn over and over and over until I finally determine that I'm really fully committed and I surrender it to God. What we value most 
is what we end up ultimately committing ourselves to completely. And so it's important not only just to have desire, but it's also important to have commitment. I have the desire to be a featherweight champion. It would be awesome to be a featherweight boxing champion. But I don't have the commitment, nor the body, to be a featherweight champion. Because it's not just desire, but it's also commitment. Commitment. Those of you who don't know what a featherweight boxer is, that's somebody who probably weighs in the 120 to 140 pound range, and I'm nowhere near that. Not even close. Jesus warned us in Luke 16 and 13. He said, No servant can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon was an idol. Mammon was God of riches. And the word is being used to denote worldly wealth and riches by Jesus Christ. Mammon is being used as a rival to God in what Jesus is talking about. He's saying that your affections, they can't be two places at one time. You have to choose one or the other or else you're going to be torn. You're going to struggle. You're going to end up despising one and loving another and then your affections will flip-flop back and forth. You can't stand between two places. And so Jesus was saying you cannot have anything else competing with you for your affection for God. Anything that rivals God for your commitment and affection becomes a substitution for God, which is exactly what mammon does. Mammon, riches, promise you that if you had wealth, then you'd be important, that you'd be valuable. That if you had money, that some of these problems would go away. You wouldn't struggle near as much. If you had money, you would be secure. There would be nothing else to worry about. The problem is, whenever you put all of that affection on money and wealth, it's trying to give you things it cannot give you. You talk to the wealthiest person in the world, they're not happy. They're not satisfied. They want more. Only God can give security. Only God can give us our supply. Only God can provide what we need. Only God can give the peace and joy that comes in His Spirit. Only God can provide that. Mammon cannot provide that. It's interesting. There was a, uh, a poll done several years ago, and I read the results. And they interviewed like some of the top millionaires in the United States and asked them, how much money do they feel like they would need to be secure? Secure. Now, how many of us think a millionaire is secure? How many of us in here are millionaires? Right. You know what they said? 25% more. The average was 25% more. They would feel secure if they had 25% more. And that didn't matter if they had a million or 10 million. Just 25% more they'd feel secure. Why? Mammon riches cannot offer what God offers. It's a substitution. And so this morning I want to preach a warning to us. Not about 
wealth and not about mammon. But I want to preach a warning to us about what happens when a person tries to live their life close to the borderline. They don't get fully committed. They don't move all the way into the center. They keep their lives right at the edge at the border, never fully committing to live either God's will for their life or their own will for their life. Choosing to live with one foot in the pleasures of the world or choosing to live with one foot and one the other foot with life and eternity. They're straddling the fence post, so to speak. They're not choosing one or the other. Instead, they choose the borderline lifestyle. And for an example, I want to use the life of Balaam. Many of you maybe have never heard of Balaam. Balaam, we find his story in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam's story is closely intertwined with the people of God for a while. Israel is coming out of Egypt and traveling into the promised land. And so they're in this major moment of transition. God is about to take them into what he's been telling them is theirs, Canaan land, promised land. And and they've made this horrible 40-year journey across the wilderness, the whole time living by miracle after miracle after miracle. And now they stand ready to move into the promised land. They're right there. And they get attacked by an enemy. And this enemy, whenever it attacks them, God provides a defeat for them. They overcome the enemy. And there's other enemies around that are watching them. And another enemy is the Midianites. They defeat the Amorites. And then the Midianites and King Balak look and they say, well, look at these people. They're a strong nation. They get nervous because Israel is passing through the Transjordan area. Transjordan was the area just on the other side of the Jordan River from the Canaan River or from the Canaan land. And so they're just about to take their promised land. Balak, he decides that the only way that he can defeat Israel is not by going to war with them. He's not going to attack them head on. Instead, he decides if I can get their God and them against one another, then I can defeat them. If I can curse them, if I can get their God to put a curse on them, then I can defeat them. And so Balak decided that he needed to find a man of God, a prophet of God that was familiar with their God that would curse them in the name of their God. And so he found Balaam. Balaam was that prophet. Balaam was a prophet who lived in Midian himself. He was a Midianite, but he lived right in the borderland, right before the land, uh, right before the Jordan River. And Balaam had been around long enough. He was connected to the Israelites. He knew them. He knew their God. He had a relationship. He had contact, but he was still living life in the border. And so Balak decided, I'm going to get Balaam, and if I offer him the right amount of money, if I offer him the right incentive, Balaam will come and he will curse them in the name of their God, and it will give me the victory. It's important to understand. Satan can't trick God into turning against you. 
This idea that Balak had was never going to work. God was for his people. But even though Satan can't trick God into turning against you, he will try to turn you against God. And so Balaam, this Midianite himself, this prophet that had knowledge of the one true God, he could even say that he had a connection with this one true God. We're going to see that he prays and God responds to him. Balaam lived right on the edge in between Midianites and Israelites. He wasn't part of one and he wasn't part of the other. He chose to be right there in the middle. And so Balak sends for Balaam in Numbers 22 and 2. It says, Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at the time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." So the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian, departed from the diviner's feet in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to the words of Balak. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? See, he's got a relationship with God. He knows God. So Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Blessed. Say the word blessed. This borderline prophet, this prophet that lived over close to the river, close to where his people were at, but were not of his people and were not of the Israelites. This Balaam that had contact with God and had a relationship with God and knew the one true God. He was familiar with the God of the Israelites and he was familiar with the Israelites. But Balaam chose not to live with God's people. He chose not to be identified as being one of those people that believed in this one true God. Balaam would not identify with them, but he also didn't want to be right there among Midian and the Moabites. He didn't quite want to be in both. He was torn between which one his allegiance fell to. Balaam chose to continue living in the place of a borderline the place between those people. He had contact with both, but he chose not to be 
part of either. He'd been with the people of God. And if he had chosen to live with God's people, Balak would have never sent for him. He never would have received an offer from the king. But because of where he chose to position himself, the king felt comfortable in saying, you know what, there's a prophet I know that he'll curse people and he'll bless people and he knows this God and if I can send and get him to come over here and do what I'm asking him to do, then I could possibly defeat this enemy. Balaam's choice of where he kept his life impacted what he struggled with. The first time the offer is made to Balaam, Balaam prays to God, God, what do you want me to do? God tells him, you don't do what those people are asking you to do. Don't curse what I've chose to bless. And so he goes back to them. He says, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this. God has spoken. And they go away. And whenever they tell Balak that he's rejected their offer, Balak says, you go back and you offer him whatever it will take. You do anything that you have to do. Offer him honor. Offer him riches. Offer him whatever he succumbs to. I want you to offer that to him. Why do you think Balak felt so comfortable in sending them back another time? Because Balaam struggled with what was right. The way that Balaam had chose to live his life with not choosing one or the other made Balak, the king of the Moabites, comfortable with continuing to dog him and plead with him to come and curse what God had blessed. Balak is not willing to take no for an answer. He's not willing to give up until the prophet does what he wants. Can I tell you, the enemy of your life never gives up on trying to get you. He does not surrender. He keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And as long as you're willing to entertain the temptation that he wants to bring into your life, that maybe I could do this, maybe I could get away with that, maybe God will forgive me again. You're going to keep struggling with that same thing over and over because the enemy will never give up trying to get you. The Lord tells Balaam, eventually, the second time, he tells him to go with him. God came to Balaam at night, verse 20, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men come to you, come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that shall you do. And it appears like God is giving Balaam permission, but the reality is God is not giving Balaam any permission. Instead, God is giving Balaam what his heart desires. We know that he was tempted by the offer because he would not have taken the offer a second time and even asked God about it. But whenever they return the second time, and you can read this all in Scripture, when they return a second time, he says, you stay again another night, I'll pray to God. God's already given him an answer. You see, this, this is a dangerous thing we need to pay attention to. 
You can ask God for something over and over and over, and God knows it's going to harm you. It's going to not be right for you. And you keep pursuing it, and as you pursue it, God says, well, their heart is fixed on it. I'm going to give them what their heart wants. How many of us have children? How many of us have given our children a lot of candy? How many of us at Halloween, the kid comes home with a bag full of candy, and you know, you know they're just as sick as they could possibly be. They just want one more piece. And you give it to them. And then that night, at some point, you clean up, throw up. Does that mean you didn't love them? No. You still love them, but you gave in to the desire of their heart. God will give you the desires of your heart. And so Balaam is tempted. He continues to be tempted. You know, the interesting thing about temptation, it's not wrong to be tempted. It's wrong when we give in to temptation. But I'll tell you, when I find myself giving in to temptation, it's when I allow temptation to persist. Because ultimately, temptation is what I want. I'm not tempted by things I don't want. I can go in a casino. I'll never spend a dollar gambling. Not tempted by that. I've been to horse tracks and saw horses run when I was younger. Never placed a wager. Not interested in that. But there's been a lot of other things in my life that I know I do not get myself around because there's a temptation there. I could want that. I could desire that. James 1 and 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. It's my own desires that I'm going to be tempted by. And the enemy knows that. He knows. And so Balak, understand, Balak did not care about Balaam. He offers him riches, he offers him honor, he offers him glory, he offers him whatever he would desire. Just name your price, I'm willing to pay it. But all he was doing was using Balaam for his own advantage. The priest did not care about Judas. He used him to get to Jesus. Delilah did not really love Samson. She betrayed him. That's not love. Satan and the world do not care for you. They, he came to steal, kill, and destroy. The world will take everything from you and leave you an empty shell. Start paying attention to the messages that are being given to you. Look at what the world is telling you. It tells you to look a certain way or you won't be accepted or you won't be loved. You alone are never enough to be loved. There's always more that you need to do to fit in. You got to wear certain clothes. You got to have a certain look. You got to dress yourself appropriately. You got to do all of these certain things, act these certain ways to fit in. You have to fulfill the lust of your flesh like everyone else, or you are odd. You're the odd person if you're not having hookups and sex. You're the odd person if you're not sensual. You're the odd person if you're not willing to surrender in drunkenness to the party and to the world. You're the one that's odd. Why? Because the world doesn't care about you. Satan doesn't care about you. 
only want to use you for their own purposes. Look at what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He says, get ready. Because life with Christ sometimes is suffering. Verse 2, that he no longer live, should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Pay attention to what he says in the next verse. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. The world does not care about you. Satan does not care about you. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. And Peter said, whenever you're standing apart and whenever you've chosen to separate yourself and you've drawn and moved away from the border that you've set around your life, they're going to look at you and they're going to think you're odd. They're going to think you're strange. They're going to talk bad about you. They're going to oppose you because you stand in separation from them and the rest of the world. Well, I want you to know something. I'm happy to be called strange. Call me strange all day long. I prefer that everyone in the world call me strange as long as God is calling me blessed. That's what I want. That's what you want. You want to be blessed of God. You don't want to stand in the middle of the world and have everything the world has. You want to be called blessed of God because it doesn't matter what the world is offering. What matters is that you've separated yourself. You've chosen and you've committed and you're not like Balaam. You're not going to stand waffling between two decisions but you have committed yourself and you're grabbing a hold of every promise in this book and you're going to live your life according to what God is calling you to do call me strange look at someone next to you and say call me strange Balak he never gives up and eventually Balaam cannot resist what is being offered. And I want, to, I want you to understand, Satan has won many people with much less than what was offered to Balaam. Satan has won people on just one night of pleasure. Satan has won people on just one little temptation. Satan has won people just because they decided to let one little thing slip through the border they put in their life. Border living is losing living because the world and Satan will take everything from you. Balaam ends up going to curse Israel. And as he goes to curse Israel, an angel tries to stop him. And it frightens the donkey that Balaam rides. We find this in Verses 22 through 27, and for time's sake, I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to tell you the story. As he rides his donkey, an angel of the Lord with a flaming sword appears in the way, and the donkey turns off to the side. And so Balaam 
strikes the donkey. He's angry. He's furious. He hits the donkey and chooses to lead the donkey in a different direction. And then the angel moves in front of him in that direction between two walls. And whenever he does, the donkey slams into the wall and crushes the foot of Balaam. Balaam's really upset now. And so he strikes the donkey again and he yells at the donkey and he's furious with the donkey. And he leads the donkey another way. And in that way, where there was no way of escape, the angel stands in front of the donkey. And so the donkey, instead of slamming into a wall or trying to go a different direction, there's no way of escape. The donkey just lays down underneath Balaam. Well, Balaam gets up, begins to beat the donkey. Furious, he's angry. And as he's beating the donkey, the donkey begins to talk to Balaam. You know what Balaam does? What would you do if the donkey you were riding started talking to you? Balaam argues with the donkey. He keeps arguing with the donkey. He's too angry and upset to realize what he's doing. Anger will blind you to what God is trying to direct your life into. How many of us get angry at situations in life? I've been angry in some situations in life. But you know, it's a dangerous thing because you can become so enraged, so angry, that you don't realize the situation God's put into your life is the very means God is using to direct your life. Balaam was completely unaware that the angel was there with a flaming sword ready to kill him until God opened his eyes and he sees what the donkey could see. And all of a sudden he realizes that God was prepared to kill him. And the angel reiterates what God has already told him once. You go with these people, but don't you curse them. You only say what God gives you to say. And if you keep reading the story, what we find is that four times... Balak, the king, tries to get Balaam to pronounce a curse over the people. He takes them on one side. He says, look down there. You see those people? You curse them in the name of their God. And instead of cursing them, he blesses them. And Balak says, what are you doing? I'm trying to get you to curse them. I'm paying you a lot of money. I'm giving you honor. I'm giving you everything. Let's go somewhere else. And they go to another side. And he says, look down there and curse them. And instead, he blesses them. Four times on all four sides of Israel, he blesses Israel. Balak is furious at Balaam. He's upset. He's paid him. He's like, do I not honor you enough? Am I not giving you enough? Why are you keeping blessing them? And Balaam says the first thing that probably makes sense in the whole story. He says, I cannot do anything except what God has told me to do, and that's to bless them. I can't curse them. I can only bless them. The sad thing about Balaam is that Balaam, his conduct only affected himself and no one else. His indecision of living between the Midianites and the Israelites and being open 
to being paid to curse the people of God. It only affected him. Instead of a life of border living and losing, he could have had a much different life. He could have experienced the blessings of God along with the people of Israel. He could have walked into a promised land that God had given to his people. He could have experienced the miracles of God instead of standing off to the side and trying to get paid to to curse the people of God. And instead of struggling with the temptation of Balak's offering, he could have been committed wholeheartedly to God. This is what's interesting. He experienced what the people of Israel experienced. He heard the voice of God. He was familiar with God. He knew God. He knew that those people were blessed. But because of his choice, someone needs to listen today. Because of his choice to live in the border area, his experience only brought him to destruction. If we don't make the commitment and we don't overcome all of the offerings of the flesh and the world and what the enemy presents to us, ultimately what we're doing is we're deciding that we're going to live with our foot in one or the other and we end up leading our own selves to destruction. Balaam's influence never impacted Israel. Israel walked away from there. They were still blessed. They still went and took Canaan. They still got the promise. It didn't impact Balak. Balak still lost. He was defeated. The outcome was no difference than if he'd been involved or not. But we have this story of Balaam in the midst of what Israel is doing, going in to Canaan land so that we can have a warning that whenever it comes to the will of God, we need to fully commit ourselves that I'm going to do whatever he asked me to do. I'm going to fully surrender my life because that's ultimately what it is. It's surrendering everything to God and saying, God, sometimes what this Bible tells me to do, I don't fully understand. I don't always comprehend it, but I know if I surrender, you're going to bless me. you'll stand with me. Jesus said you cannot go on trying to live between two masters. You can't go on trying to serve the flesh, trying to serve the world, trying to serve God. You can't go on entertaining temptation over and over and over. But if you make a decision, if you commit, if you submit your life to God, if you commit to doing His will for your life, I wish I could tell you it's always, always the easiest road to walk. It's not. Sometimes you feel persecuted. Sometimes you feel abandoned. Sometimes you feel hurt. Sometimes you feel like it's not going to work out. But when you commit, there's always going to be a blessing in the end. But if you oppose God 
And every one of us know this. If you oppose God, you're going to be cursed. What we struggle with is, what about whenever I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. I'm not fully committed. I'm not hanging on and clinging on, doing everything that I can to walk with God. What about that person? Balaam serves as an example. He's eventually slain by the people of God. When they defeat the area, he's one of the victims. But it could have been different. He could have chose not to live a border lifestyle. And he could have committed to the people of God. Let's take a moment and let the Spirit of God speak to 